Ahoy, Mets fan. Welcome to episode 248 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore, and thank you, as always, for joining us today. So ahead of the Mets-Dodgers uh, series coming up this weekend, we had a chance to speak to ESPN analyst, former Major League third baseman, Aaron Boone, about the series, the Mets this season, and if the Dodgers can be beat at all. So we're going to start off with that conversation. All right, Aaron, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast uh, this week. We've got a big series coming up this weekend. The Mets are welcoming the seemingly unstoppable Los Angeles Dodgers into City Field for the weekend. And uh, for maybe Mets fans who haven't watched a ton of Dodgers games this year, what is this team doing that is leading to this incredible run they're on right now? They're doing everything. Um, you know, obviously they've been, you know, the class of the NL West the last few years, um, but haven't been able to quite get over the hump in the playoffs. And I, and, I, and I feel like their issue the last couple of seasons, you know, come the postseason time where they've been a very good team has been just – not quite that championship level bullpen. They've had Kenley Jansen, obviously one of the great closers in the sport, but I feel like in certain games, they've just had a difficult time in that sixth, seventh, eighth inning, consistently being able to get the ball to Kenley Jansen. I think it's resulted in them at times where Kershaw's had a bad outing, sticking with him a little longer because they didn't quite trust the bullpen. And then last year, offensively against left-handed pitching was a major problem. It was really the only thing keeping this team from being, you know, maybe the Cubs last year, you know, they were that good. It just came to left-handed pitching. Their offense really struggled and they have completely reversed that this year. They're one of the best offensive teams against left-handed pitching. Um, Justin Turner's come back. And even though he's, he's had a few great seasons with the Dodgers, he was one of the guys that struggled against left-handed pitching. He is, kind of dominated left-handed pitching this year so um it's just and then bullpen starting pitching they really have not had a weakness it's why they've been on this epic run now you mentioned justin turner which is a sore spot for many mets fans because he was a met and then seemingly the day Mm -hmm. he was traded became an all-star caliber hitter what have you seen in turner's approach over the last few years that's made him uh into this hitter that mets fans just didn't see with any regularity when he was playing in queens yeah, I, I think it's what what's palpable is is the fact that he's he's got such a good game plan when he goes up there. I think he really understands his mechanics of the swing, what pitchers are trying to do to him. He's an outstanding high ball hitter, but I, I think he goes up there as good as anyone and and, and executes a plan, looks for a particular pitch, um, and, and doesn't miss it. And and really, he's just kind of taking advantage of of opportunity when he came over to the Dodgers. It wasn't an everyday role, but he uh, gradually earned more and more playing time. He's an outstanding defensive third baseman as well. And now he's become, you know, on the very short list of elite all-around third baseman, a guy that is a true middle-of-the-order hitter and and a guy that can play outstanding defense at third base. But I think it's just aptitude, opportunity, and making the most of it. Now, obviously, there's not a ton of data to go from here, but uh, as a former infielder, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on the newest Met, the newly promoted Ahmed Rosario, who's played shortstop for them the last series in Colorado. He's listed among you know various um, experts the top you know, in the top five prospects in the game. Um, I don't know if you have a chance to see him play or if you've read up on him, but what are your thoughts on Ahmed Rosario? 
Yeah, in in going and doing my spring training rounds this year, the day I was in Port St. Lucie, um, got a chance to meet him, got a chance to watch him up up close, take batting practice, take ground balls, and he leapt off the screen to me. I, I felt like it was a, an enormous talent. I feel like uh, the bat speed is is elite. Um, you know, as I like to say, he's got lightning in his hands, and that and that really showed. He's got. Um, you know, he's got a little swagger to him in a good way. Um, you know, I think he understands he's, he's got a lot of ability. I liked what I saw just watching him that day work defensively. Um, I'm in the camp that based on what I've seen and, and certainly how he's performed to get to this point, I'm in the camp that believes he is going to be a potential star player. Um, and, and I think one of those exciting things for Mets fans to, to watch him come up and, and hopefully try to establish himself and, and create some momentum uh, for himself in these months heading into the off season and, and what the Mets hope is a, obviously a much better season next year. Well, let's talk about that for a second. You know, this has been a, a lost season for the Mets for a number of reasons, but mainly injuries. You know, there's been injuries to just about every corner of the team. If you were a Mets fan, what are the things that you'd be excited about looking forward to next season? <laughs> Well, I think these final two months are, are important for guys like Steven Matz. Um, you know, can, can he really put together a couple months of consistent pitching to, again, create some momentum for him going into the offseason because he's potentially such a big part of what has a chance to still be an outstanding team, I think, for the Mets next season. Um, Matt Harvey, what, what is he when he comes back? And, and I think, you know, he could be pitching, frankly, for a contract. I mean, he could be – you know, one of those guys, if he struggles a little bit when he does come back, it could be a non-tender situation, which is hard to hard to believe. But he could also really pitch himself back into to the plans in, and back into the plans in a big way. You know, getting Noah, Noah Syndergaard back at some point and, and just knowing he's healthy heading into the offseason. Um, you know, how, how does a, Ahmed Rosario do? Dom's... Dominic Smith's probably going to come up at some point. Can can he kind of work his way into a potential starting role? So even though this in many ways has been a lost season, I still think there's obviously a ton of potential. I like the under the radar pickup of AJ Ramos, who who you have control next year as part of your bullpen. I think that's a sign that the Mets and their front office believe that they can absolutely win next year. So I think that was a move that. Uh, you know, obviously with them pretty much out of the race, that's obviously a move built towards, hey, getting a solid bullpen piece um, for your 2018 team. And, um, you know, for as bad a year, tough a year as it's been for the Mets, um, there are some things in these final couple of months that are really important, especially for the 2018 season. Uh, sometimes it can seem like, you know, when you're a fan of a team, you you live in this echo chamber where you hear the same opinions bouncing around all the time. So I'm interested to hear from somebody who watches the game on a more national scale. What is the, uh, what's your opinion on Michael Conforto? Do you think that he has the potential to be a perennial all-star? I do. Um, yeah, I a- absolutely do. And, um, you know, I think he'll head into next year, obviously not, you know, having to kind of kick in that door and, and earn his spot. I, I think he's, more than done that, obviously, um, and I do. I, I think I think the bats for real on, on an elite level. Um, I think there's 
the ability to play all three outfield positions. Um, but I think the thing that really jumps out for me is just the ease with which he hits the ball out the other way. And, and I think that's something that will serve him well. And I think, you know, when we look up in several seasons, if he's staying healthy, uh, I think we'll be looking at one of the really, really good offensive players from, from a standpoint of being able to get on base and hit for power. All right, last question for you before I let you go. Who's one player from each team this weekend that you think will uh, will be a big player in the next year? Maybe somebody who's not being talked about so much right now, but who's somebody from the Dodgers and the Mets who this time next year will be talking a lot about? Um, well, I'll say Ahmed Rosario just because um, of his talent and, and of what I believe is his ceiling and, and, and the fact that he could really, and especially when you look at the Mets and, and – you know, some of the age um, that they've had, especially in their infield, you know, the chance to add some youth and some athleticism um, into the infield. And if he can go out and grab that spot and be a guy that is going to be counted on heading into next year with his ceiling, I think he's absolutely um, a guy we'll be watching. And, and, you know, I, I don't know necessarily about next year, but, you know, Yasiel Puig, you know, he's obviously a, a, a polarizing figure, a lightning rod, a guy that's been talked about in extremes all the time. And, you know, at times even I thought, how how much longer was he going to be with the Dodgers with all that kind of fo- has followed him and just little controversies here and there. But he settled in and you know, primarily hitting down the order, hitting eighth a lot of the time. He settled in and had a really solid season for them and been extremely productive at the bottom of the order, been one of the best right defensive right fielders in the sport. And I think a guy that has just grown up a lot, matured a lot, and, and really become an important part of what's been the best team in baseball. Well, thank you so much for the time, Aaron. We look forward to hearing your commentary Sunday night during the game, which fans can catch on ESPN. And uh, have a good rest of the season. You bet. Thank you. All right, Chris. Well, welcome back from your uh, your little not not quite a honeymoon, but a, a, a wedding trip. And uh, I'm glad to hear you had a nice time. And uh, I can assure you, we missed you here on the podcast. So uh, welcome home. Well, thank you. It is good to be back. As tough as it can be to adjust from vacation. Uh, and yes, it's not officially was well, not officially the honeymoon, but uh, kind of a, somebody referred to it as a mini moon, which is one of those like wedding related terms that i can't stand i agree but when but when i heard it i was like yeah i i, I guess that that's pretty much it that sums it up i hate it the sums term it up, but it's a stupid term yeah yeah oh there are so many stupid terms oh yep yep uh, uh but it's a whole other podcast <laughs> yes so before we get off into that uh i will just say i didn't i i, I missed talking to you and i missed the podcast i did not miss the mets i didn't miss baseball uh i I came back feeling like i don't know just there's sort of this sense i have right now of so what if you're a bandwagon fan 
You know, like when your team's terrible, you don't have to watch every game. You don't have to pay attention to everything. You can you can kind of take it in as you see fit, and then be addicted when the team is really good. There's nothing wrong with that. It's it's odd to hear you say that, and I, I don't disagree. By the way, I, I think that as as we get older and sort of like uh, things like weddings and kids and, and and even like cool vacations, you know, whatever when these things happen. And you 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 put the you put baseball aside for a few days. You realize like oh there is life without baseball, right? That, that that's, that's a realization we can have as adults. But I think that as Mets fans, we had gone so long between competitive teams that once they started getting competitive again, like at least for me, my enthusiasm was just you know through the roof for a couple of years there. But now that now that that's subsided a little bit, I think. Uh, I think more and more people are going to be agreeing with what you just said. Yeah, I, and it's not like I mean, I'll be realistic with myself. I am not doing that. And well, as so long right. as you, the listener, are tuning in, please keep listening to us. <laughs> but, but yeah, I don't know. It's just the, the, there's sort of this sense of like being a fan shouldn't be competitive. You know what I mean? Like, like oh, I was there for all the bad times and all that like okay like as long as you enjoyed it i guess and this is something that i don't think is out of character for me as long as you get enjoyment out of watching it even when the team is bad then that's fine but you know if you're at a point that like watching your favorite team makes you truly miserable there's no shame in taking a little break you know even if it's a couple weeks at a time of just tuning out, checking back in, seeing, you know, there's so many different ways to stay in touch with your favorite team without necessarily having it, you know, take over your life. And I'm saying this as somebody who will probably still every night that there's a game the rest of the season have it on the TV in my apartment. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's funny. I, I think, you know, you and I were, were talking earlier today about this a little bit, and I was saying, you know, how there's, uh, I'm sort of finishing up a big project right now, and so my mind is just in a million places, but... Because uh, you were away last week, I, I sort of picked up some of the uh, some of the recap weight from you not being there. So I recapped something like right. four games last week. So I, I had to I had to pay attention, even though in my mind that was the furthest thing I really wanted to do. And um, in some ways, I'm glad I did because it it uh, it gave me a reason to watch when it would be really easy to, to just say forget this and not watch the games. On the other hand, it would have been really convenient to just say, forget this. I don't want to watch this bad <laughs> team right now. So I understand. Oh, yeah. And to be clear, you know, we took a vacation to Puerto Rico in September 2015. And things were pretty much in the bag at that point. Um, I forget the exact dates we went away. The Mets hadn't clinched yet, but they had swept the Nationals, you know, for the second time in that you know that final eight weeks i think you know the first was right at the beginning of august at city field and then was it labor day weekend that year at at, um yes yes okay so like those two series were in the past it was sort of uh you know aside from people who were very creative and bringing up uh 2007 nobody's actually nobody's actually (laughs) worrying about it you know um but i was more stressed then about like we're going to do all this awesome stuff every day, but I got to see the Mets and, you know, wound up having a harder time doing that than I anticipated and everything, you know. So, uh, I don't know. Just uh, 
a refreshing perspective that like the the Mets are just fine. They were going to do what they were going to do at the trade deadline with or without me. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, they pick personally for me. They picked a good season to to have it go down the tubes. Um, and then I mean, trying to be an optimist and you know be excited. This is the most pessimistic you've ever been on the podcast. By the way, <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, uh, I don't know, but hopefully this is more like the Red Sox of recent years where, you know, one bad season doesn't mean that uh, the next one's going to be terrible. Right. You know, they, they, they've had sort of an odd pattern of bouncing between being World Series champions, which obviously the Mets have not uh, accomplished themselves yet. But, you know, between that and then these sort of mediocre, just no good non-competitive seasons. Yeah. Well, let's talk about those Boston Red Sox because today the Mets made a trade with the Boston Red Sox. They sent Addison Reed, uh, the, it's funny. I I thought about this today. Addison Reed, who was picked up as a trade after the trading deadline, he was a waiver trade in uh, August of 2015 and has been, I mean, has been pretty great for the Mets over his tenure as a Met. Uh, you know, he was traded away today for a, a trio of pitching prospects from the Red Sox. And uh, this is probably the least surprising trade the Mets have made in some years. I think everybody knew that Reed was going to be gone. There, There is some, there's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, variety of opinion as to the haul the Mets got back for Reed. And I, I think both of us will admit that we are not perhaps the most qualified guys to have that conversation. Um, you know, so some of some of the folks on the minor league side of Mason Avenue would certainly have a better grasp on these, on these prospects. And, uh, than I would, at least I don't want to speak for you, Chris, but, um, yeah, no, general, I'll, I'll admit, I don't know these guys at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, I know what anyone else knows from their baseball reference pages and, and things you may have read today from people who have actually seen them. Yeah, uh, our, our pal Jeffrey Paternostro described these three guys as lottery tickets. And that seems like a pretty good uh, way to describe them. You know, these are guys that have that have obviously far more natural baseball talent than I have. And, you know, uh, if, if things break right for them, they put it together, they could be solid major league relief pitchers. But more than likely, these guys, you know, at least, at least one or two of them will probably not... Uh, not be the next Francisco Rodriguez or uh, or Mariano Rivera. Um, yeah. So, and, go ahead. Sorry. Oh yeah, no. I mean, they so they sort of fit. Uh, I would say I'm. I would say I'm generally underwhelmed by both trades. Only because uh, we've been a little bit spoiled in the past, you know. It, getting Zach Wheeler for Beltron in a rental situation, getting Syndergaard and Darno for Dickey when. Uh, you know, it was like the prime time to sell high on Dickey. You know, not every mm-hmm. trade has gone well under Alderson, but it, deals like those, I think, have maybe spoiled us a little bit. Both of those were a long time ago now, uh, you know, so these moves might be just fine. And and I guess they, like, there's nobody here who jumps off the page to me. They all sort of fit a, a you know, certain type Um you know, high strikeout relievers, uh, and they all fit into something that I was 
hoping the Mets would kind of focus on, which was getting guys who can be major league relievers. Um, it's just not something that's in the organization right now. It's something they have hesitated to spend money on at every opportunity. Um, you know, I don't know. Like, did Frank Francisco make them feel that burnt? Uh, and then they go out again, and Antonio Bestardo, I think, was probably the biggest signing that they made it, uh, of a reliever since then. And he was awful coming off a few good seasons. Um, don't forget DJ Carrasco. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just Carrasco, at least, like, you could look at his stats and be like, oh, he's not very good, you know, at the time <laughs> he was signed. Frank Francisco was a little more in between, you know, he had yeah. had sort of success in his own style and everything, and uh, um, who's the other guy I just mentioned? Oh, Bastardo. Uh, Bastardo had had, you know, he wasn't coming off his best season, but he had several years in a row that he had really, you know, respectable ERA, that kind of yeah, thing. Absolutely. Um. So yeah, they all they all fit. It's just that when you look at where they are in their minor league careers, only two out of the four, and we're lumping in Drew Smith, you know, who came over in the in the trade for Duda as the, just the one guy. Um, he and Jamie Callahan are the only guys who have pitched at higher levels of the minors so far. So uh, I think that's more what's underwhelming to me. And for all I know, hey, maybe all four of these guys will be in the major league or triple a bullpen at the start of next season. But it's just sort of like they, they fit this, go get a bunch of guys who throw hard or, or, you know, are having success as relievers. Um, see if you can turn that into good major league bullpen. It's just that they're not all that close to that point that I think I'm more underwhelmed by that is what I'm saying. Right now, I understand that. I, mean, I think if you look at the uh, all the trades made today, I think almost every return that was received was considerably less than maybe the the teams had initially hoped for. Yeah, I think uh, Sonny Gray seemed like the Yankees had to pay a fair price in terms of prospects. Yeah, but I I don't know. A couple of our of our minor league folks were saying that the Yankees fleeced the A's pretty pretty badly. I also don't think Sonny Gray is very good. <laughs> well, that, that that is that is possibly fair as well. But you know, but just in general, this is not. Nobody traded Carlos Beltran for Zach Wheeler this year. Right. Yeah. 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 Wheeler was at the time. Uh, what was he? Well, let's for the sake of accuracy, let me uh, let me actually look was, it up. I believe he was a top ten prospect. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. And At he was, least he felt he, that way when, when right. the trade was announced. Oh yeah, and he was certainly right up there. Um, yeah, what what year was that trade? That was uh, twenty twelve. Eleven. Eleven. Let's see. Maybe even twenty ten. No, wait. Yeah, twenty. It was the twenty eleven trade deadline. Okay. So. Going into the 2011 season, he was uh, 55th on Baseball America's list and 52nd on Prospectus. And then he made his way up those lists. Um, you know, by the time they got to 2013, obviously in the Mets organization for a little while at that point, 11 on BA, 5 on BP, you know. Yeah. And that that's why he was a guy who you could hypothetically tweet 
Matt Harvey was W-A-Y behind. Yep. <laughs> at a certain point in time. Callbacks to jokes from Mets Twitter and... Yep. <laughs> almost five years ago. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> time is a bandit. It is. Um, but, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what I expected the Mets to get for Reed and Duda, but I think that it was very, very clear from, you know, maybe not before the Duda trade, but certainly after the Duda trade, it was clear that they were not going to be getting a blockbuster package back for, for Addison Reed. Um, that said, you know, it's certainly better than letting Reed walk and, and coming back with nothing. Right. I, I think, I think we, we can all agree on that. And I think that, you know, there's a, uh, there's an argument to be made that, that by that by trading for AJ Ramos, which we'll get to in a few minutes, the Mets were effectively already punting on the bullpen this offseason. That that's their big offseason move, and that these are just the sort of insurance policies, or the you know that they're hoping to find the next Hansel Robles, or the guy who's better than the next Hansel Robles, but the next you know middle reliever out there. So this this wasn't necessarily to they weren't looking for a blockbuster deal. They were just looking for perhaps cheap functional pieces for next year, which, you know, on one hand probably makes sound financial sense, but on the other hand is about the least sexy thing you can do with a trade deadline. Yeah. So I, I, I understand the frustration on the parts of Mets fans. Yeah. And I will say one thing, you know, obviously Reed is a rental, so yes. that factors in heavily. Uh, and in the week, you know, yesterday, as we record right now, yesterday, Jeff Bagwell went into the hall of fame uh, distant memory, pretty much nobody the same in the Red Sox organization, certainly not at the levels of, you know, making transactions. But, you know, you remember that they tried to wait Bagwell for a reliever in the heat of a pennant race. Gives you right. a, a little something to dream on, right? Um, that That's not what I actually expected to happen. But, yeah. Uh, so there, there's, I just wanted to get Jeff Bagwell in, really. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're a big Bagwell fan, and uh, so congratulations yes. to your guy going in yesterday. Yes, thank you. I'm glad that he got in sooner than Tim Raines did, so that, I mean, I would, I would have been honored to be uh, the champion of his cause, but, you know, he, he got there. Mike Piazza essentially opened the door, and he got yeah. in. But, yeah, um, it, it, just back to Reed real quick, I think... I think a lot of people didn't realize how good he has been since he became a Met. And it's something I kept, you know, tweeting about. I worked it into some of the posts in the couple of days since I've been back uh, about him. You know, since he was traded to the Mets, and it's an arbitrary period of time, you know, I'll admit that, but of everybody who had thrown 100 innings in Major League Baseball since August 31st, 2015, Reed had the fifth best ERA, and it was uh, Andrew Miller, Kenley Jansen, Clayton Kershaw, and Chapman who were better than him. And Chapman, Chapman was just, I think, slightly better. Um, it's really, really good, you know? And, it, and obviously not his entire career had gone that well, but it also wasn't like he was the fifth best for a month. Right. You know, it was it was essentially two seasons. Uh, a little bit shy because he was traded to the Mets at you know at the 
uh, waiver trade deadline instead of the non-waiver trade deadline. A month shy of two seasons, he was outstanding. And I, I just think that got overlooked a little bit. Uh, you know, even Mets fans seemed to me in conversation to talk more about whether or not he was capable of pitching the ninth inning rather than just enjoying the fact that he was really, really good. Yeah. No, I, that might go down as, I mean, it's not going to be as good as the Thor trade, right? But right. that might be one of Sandy Alderson's best trades from his entire Mets tenure. I mean, the, the fact that he picked him up for nothing, yeah, and then, you know, he was their setup man for two postseason runs, and then was their closer, and a pretty good closer for most of the season. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, in this fantasy land, and I guess this is our... Nice segue to Ramos. Um, but well, I, I want one more thought before we actually officially go there. But I would love the Mets uh, to go and bring Reed back. Me too. I had the same thought today, actually. I, I fully expect it to not happen, but I mean, I'd will, love to will, get him back. <laughs> no. Yeah. But he, I don't know. He, he's, he's good enough to me to warrant the deal that I think he can get. I also think he might not get a deal on par with somebody like Kimbrell or Jansen, even though he's, you know, pitched at that level for almost two full seasons now. Um, I'd love to have him back. I'd love to go into next year with, you know, whatever Familia is. Because I I think there's a little uncertainty there. Uh, I'd love to go into it with Familia, Ramos, Reed coming back. You know, last offseason, Kenley Jansen was incredibly appealing to me. For the Mets, and again, I didn't expect them to even attempt to uh, <laughs> to sign him, and they didn't. But I don't know. I don't. I don't think the three headed monster or whatever you know phrase is uh, the common thing to describe what the Royals had for a while and what the Yankees have now. I don't know if that's necessary to compete, but man, it's nice to have. It just shortens the game, and that's such a again cliche phrase to use. But it really, and we've seen that this year. We've seen this year how many Mets games would look different if they had somebody of quality to bring in after the sixth inning. Right. And I mean, that to me is the alarming thing is that, you know, people like to uh, dismiss the thoughts and opinions. And to be fair, plenty of fans have terrible opinions, but they like to sort of dismiss things that are said and you know sometimes fans have valid opinions and I think the lack of activity in the bullpen over last offseason was something that a lot of people made noise about the team essentially did nothing about you know getting Blevins back was good Um, Fernando Salas not so much (laughs) but you know that was it and you were going in just assuming Familia and Reed would be healthy uh, I, I will give them a little bit of slack that Hansel Robles, I, I didn't think, would implode. Right. Well, we've had that conversation before. Yes, we have. But I'll, I'll cut them some slack there. But even then, you know, modern bullpen is seven guys. And they had like three and a half. Three and a half. <laughs> Maybe four if you yeah. want to count Salas and Robles each as a half. It's just not... I don't know. And it, I think, I hope that they learn from that mistake. That is obviously not the primary reason why things have been bad this year. Um, but I don't know. 
you gotta you gotta add strength where you can, and you're gonna go into next season with Conforto, Cespedes, Rosario, and maybe Smith all starting. Yeah, to me, if you truly believe in those two guys, the rookies, um, you, you gotta compliment them and, and give them a chance to succeed. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, you know. There are a number of things the Mets are going to have to address this offseason, but so much of what they're going to address is going to be based around what they believe on, on folks coming back from injuries, right? So you have, you, have to, you have to ask yourself, you know, is Juan Ligaris going to be an everyday player for the Mets? Um, is Neil Walker worthy of, you know, trying to bring back after his back surgery? Is... Uh, is Rubio Cabrera going to be a part of this team long term? Is David Wright going to be a part of this team going forward? You know, these are all important questions. The one question that has no doubt in its mind, there is no waiting and seeing, is the bullpen. That is the only part of the team that I think you can look at right now and say, without question, no matter how healthy Syndergaard and Harvey come back, all that, you're going to need bullpen arms in this offseason. Yeah. Yeah, even if you get to a point that you feel comfortable going into next season with your rotation is DeGrom, Syndergaard, uh, Matt, Harvey Wheeler, Matts, Harvey Wheeler, Gazelman, Lugo. Even if you get to a spot that you feel comfortable with that, and I think that's a topic we can delve into. We're going to have a lot of off-season to talk about. I was going to say, we got plenty of time, Chris. <laughs> There's no reason to rush next one. Right, but but even if you do all that, and just, just backing up your point, there is clearly... Like it, this year, if nothing else, has demonstrated that you can't go. Oh, the two guys who aren't in the rotation can just go to the bullpen, right? You know, it, I think the only two pitchers who I could expect a fully healthy season from next year are Syndergaard and Degrom. I don't think it's reasonable to expect it from anybody else. I could make an argument for Gazelman. Yeah, because it's just a, a hamstring. Yeah, yeah, but but. But I, I'm not disagreeing with your point. I, I think you're spot on. Um, and also, I mean, there's Gazelman also has been bad. Well, yeah, <laughs> that that's perhaps the bigger point here. Um, what I was going to say, though, to me, what's what's really interesting is there's a very good chance that Sandy Alderson is not the GM making these decisions this off season. You think he would uh, retire? Isn't this the end of his contract, or does he have one more year? Uh, I don't remember. It's the end of Terry's. I know that. I know that. Brings, I think it's, I think bring it's also joy. the end of Sandy's. Is it? I could be. I could be wrong about that. Luckily, Cots contracts includes executives. I think. <laughs> Let's find out. Look it up. Yeah. If I upgrade this MacBook Pro, I could have told you the answer already. Oh, don't get me started on updating <laughs> Macs. I'm with you. Uh, oh no, you're you're right. Um, it. Alderson's current contract, according to Cots, is uh, through 2017. Yeah, so you know that that throws a whole other monkey wrench into the into the plan. You know, is John Rico still the heir apparent? Would they consider going outside the organization, especially if this season really ends up looking bad at the end of the, at the end of the year? Because at that point, all bets are off in terms of a strategy. You know, we think we know how the Mets operate because we've had Alderson for the last number of years. But if it's a new GM, that that really will make for a very interesting offseason. Yeah, I think that's where you start to get into, you know, some guys that we've considered untouchable 
might become that. But also, some of those guys are like don't have much trade value now. It's it's funny. A friend of mine yesterday was like, "Hey, remember when we should have traded Harvey to the Yankees?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, I do remember that." And uh, now, I mean, I don't think Harvey has. I don't think you trade him for a bag of balls at this point in his career. Right. I and, you know uh, I think he's he's got to have a, a healthy season. And one, and and he has always been unfairly knocked. You know, dude hasn't gotten arrested. You want to knock him for missing the the game that you know he didn't show up for earlier in the season? Fine. Um, but you know, to the extent of, that we know, he hasn't done anything that has landed him in handcuffs. That that much we know. Uh, but you know, he maybe he parties too much, right? That I guess that's mm-hmm. the overall knock. Even though the the beginning of those criticisms were when he was going to Madison Square Garden and watching a freaking hockey game like right exactly yeah you know oh no why is why is Matt Harvey on a date at a sport on on a night off in the city that he plays in like he he's dealt with a lot of absurdity um but I think he has to have a a, a pretty clean season health wise and you know even though it's unfair uh off the field stuff you know, no, no major stories there, and 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 he'd have to do all that to become appealing in a trade in July of next year, right? Unless somebody really has, takes a shine to him and, and the Mets trade him for nothing this offseason. but I, that's not that's not Sandy's way. So again, if Sandy's not GM, maybe all this changes. But right. we know Sandy is is not one to sell low on somebody. Right, yeah, and man, uh, while we're on the topic of guys who've been bad, Stephen Matz has just been, ugh. oh, man, it's been it's been painful to watch him pitch. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't. Are there any? Uh, since I've been tuned out, are there any accusations that the Mets are abusing him by making him do his job, or uh, are we not doing that this year? <laughs> I don't think we're doing that yet <laughs> this year. I don't. I don't know if there's any secret injuries that you know the dark corners of the Mets internet know about, but nobody else does. Um, I don't think so. Not okay. just yet, at least. Um, Canada. You know, Canada uh, was so delightful that I just turned my sarcasm way up when I came back. <laughs> um, let's let's briefly touch on AJ Ramos. Yeah. Uh, so this is a weird deal. So the Mets, while they're selling off. You know, uh, um, Lucas Duda and Addison Reed, and if rumors are to be, uh, you know, correct, trying to sell off as Dribble Cabrera, Curtis Granderson, and Jay Bruce, they traded for a player under control next year. They traded for Marlins reliever AJ Ramos. Now, uh, Ramos has uh, one year left on his uh, contract. He's arbitration eligible, so the it looks like he's be making about ten million dollars next year, which is a, a reasonably steep. Um, salary. He looked like garbage yesterday in his Mets debut. Uh, threw a wild pitch, gave a bunch of hits, walked a batter. Um, you know, I, I understand that this is probably uh, insurance, you know, bullpen insurance if they trade a re, which they did. Uh, but I but I really, I, I'm sort of having a hard time with this deal. What do you think of this deal, Chris? Uh I like it. I don't. I don't care about other than having the novelty of having like another guy named Cespedes in the organization. <laughs> I don't care. I the 
he and Miranda Gonzalez were sort of downplayed a lot by guys who follow that stuff much more closely than I do. Um, so I don't really mind giving them up. Ramos, you know, this year is not his prettiest stat line, but typically a high strikeout reliever, which I like. Walks have generally been too high for him. Um, but yeah, I don't know. This is a guy, he's only 30. Four, you know, he had a cup of coffee in 2012, but out of the five seasons he's been in the majors since then, four of them he's had either good or really good or great ERAs. This year is just not uh, one of those. So uh, I like him. He, he might not be, you know, he's not Kenley Jansen. Nobody really is in terms of the extreme strikeout rate and extremely low walk rate. Kenley Jansen right. is like, and I guess Andrew Miller falls into this as well, but, you know, it's the, Jansen in particular is like the control of Bartolo Colon with more than two and a half times the strikeouts. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. So um, I guess, uh, the, to me, Ramos falls into this bin, uh, a philosophy that I had a few years ago that maybe I need to remind myself of at times, too. They, they can't all be Mike Trout, right? I don't know who... Right. I guess Jansen is the Mike Trout of relievers to me right now. Maybe Andrew Miller would be a little bit more to some people. Um, but they can't all be that. You know, I think he's he's somebody who's good, uh, good to very good, and uh, I'm, I'd be happy to have him on the team next year. And if him making ten million dollars instead of some other reliever making five or six is prohibitive to anything the Mets are doing next year, then there is a much larger problem. I mean, I, I certainly agree with that part of it. You know, um, this this shouldn't be a financial question at all. It will be, but it shouldn't be. Um, I guess I've just never been that high on Ramos. Um, he walks way too many batters for for my taste, and uh, it just seems to me like this is the type of uh, yeah, this is the type of closer that a team goes out and gets if he isn't he going to be their closer. You know, this is the type of bullpen arm you go out and get when you want to give the appearance of contention, but you don't want to pay for the skills to contend. Like this reminds me very much of this would be a Mets closer in twenty eleven. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Um, and it's uh, part of it right now for me in terms of liking it is I'm, I'm taking it very much in isolation. You know, they gave up two borderline non-prospects, um, at least from my, you know, my reading yeah. of what everybody else has said about these two guys, uh, to get somebody who's been a good major league player for several years. Uh, isn't having his best season, but, you know, could very well have a good season next year. That's fine. If the context becomes this is the offseason plan for the bullpen in its entirety, then I hate it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You, you know, so I, we, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm afraid that that is the case. But, um, you know, I'm kind of... Uh, uh, I'll say we should at least wait to see what happens. And we might have to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait based on the way the bullpen market goes. <laughs> but, yeah, if it's if it's Familia, Ramos, Blevins, and other in-house options, that is not okay. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, and then, you know, I, I think we should take a minute to salute the good first baseman. 
who has been good for the Rays already. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> He's made life and, a little hard on the Yankees, which is always uh, an enjoyable thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lucas Duda, we, we fare thee well. I, I think we're all happy that Curtis Granderson got something in the trade for the We Follow Lucas Duda Instagram account. Yes. Um, but, you know, I, and Steve Scheiber and I talked about this a little bit last week. Personally, I'm really going to miss Duda. I, I was a big Duda supporter. I really like Duda as a player. I think he is one of the most criminally underrated players in baseball. Uh, and, you know, just he's sort of the type of ball player that I like to watch. I like guys that are, that are you know, um, that are high walk, high strikeout players, especially as a first baseman. He is, uh, he's been somebody I've really enjoyed as a Met. And I'm going to miss, I'm going to miss the good first baseman. Uh, do you have any thoughts on Duda walking, uh, you know, being put in a trade? Yeah, no. I mean, I I remember uh, I remember seeing when he he was a cyclone. Um, you know, the name stood out, so it's always cool to see a guy at an earlier stage eventually make it, overcome the obstacle of Ike Davis's fading career, <laughs> and uh, and you know flourish. And yeah, he's yeah. To be clear, I don't mind players who are louder and more in your face. Bryce Harper can play for my Mets any day. Um, you know, I'd, I'd take that in a heartbeat. But I can also appreciate the guy who's quiet and reserved and, you know, doesn't like to say much and has that personality that makes We Follow Lucas do it into a, uh, a possibility. Yeah. You know, I almost hope, like, I'm not saying that the Mets should seek to give players away. And I don't know if the, the Rays even have real room for him, but in a couple of weeks, if he clears waivers and the Rays will give you a B prospect or a C prospect, send Granderson to go hang out with Lucas Duda and, and play on that team and try to torment the Yankees. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. You know, like yeah. what do you? All you're doing is open up playing time for Conforto and Bruce and and whatever. Or or, yeah. if, or if Bruce is gone, Conforto and Nimmo. Um, you, you know, you really can't do any harm to this Mets roster at this point. And I love Curtis Granderson, but I'm 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 ready to, you know face the uh the reality of the situation here and like go let him have fun uh i don't know it would be kind of fun to troll the yankees with a former yankee <laughs> yeah yeah I, um, it, you can tell my priorities have switched i think <laughs> I, I think my reverse order of rooting and it's like especially today as people are like oh the yankees got sunny gray 29 coming up like hold on guys make the playoffs first right, yeah. <laughs> like that hasn't been commonplace now for the last few years, and the one time in was a, a one and done in the wild card game. You know, get to the playoffs before we start tar- talking about you know fitting Sonny Gray for his Yankees World Series ring. Uh, but that's been a little bit annoying for me. So you know, Nationals are obviously number one on my root against list, and then I would say Yankees and Cubs. After that, the other you know, any other team that's in whatever, fine by me. I'm, I'm accelerating. I, I guess, I'm, I'm bringing us to like September 30th here. <laughs> well, Chris, unfortunately, we got two months before then. <laughs> Literally, it's two months before then. Yeah. Oh goddamn! Now that I say that out loud, that's depressing. Yeah, but yeah, no. Lucas Duda was. Um, I had joked sometime before I went away that I hoped that he got traded to the Yankees and was awesome and was like their world series mvp just to make the mets fans who hated him feel even that much worse yeah 
Um, and I just don't understand. I'll never understand. It's something that gets talked about a lot. You know, the best players get hated on more than the mediocre ones. Um, you know, we, we expect them to be perfect in every situation. But Carlos Beltran was underrated. I think Robinson Cano was underrated as a Yankee. Um, yep. You know, you, you get to be the best, even recently. And and I I have a whole Cano rant that I'll I'll save for when we have dead space. But like Bryce Harper, he could play for my team any day. Love him, love the way he plays the game, love the results and everything. But at some point, I think during the Mariners series, I heard him, you know, a, a reference to him being like, not a caddy. It wasn't that word. It wasn't that insulting, but sort of like a sidekick. I, I think it was the uh, the Robin to Derek Jeter's Batman. And for a lot of time, they overlapped. Robinson Cano was the best player on that team. Oh, absolutely. I think for the entire time, they overlapped. Yeah, like maybe very, very early on, Jeter was still a little closer to his, you know, his prime, and Cano was kind of getting his feet wet maybe early on. But, but for either all or the grand majority of the time, he was the guy. And, you know, I understand the legend of Derek Jeter, but, you know, it's... I like to see guys recognized for being great when when they are. And Lucas Duda was not Robinson Cano, but he was really damn good. I really think a lot of it comes from when the WFAN listening, uh, and not listening to the broadcast, but listening to the, uh, the sort of sports talk nation, when those fans decided Ike Davis was their guy, I think... Duda represented this out of touch egghead Alderson and how he was gonna run the team and he was he was messing with home runs, man. Yeah, you know, that that <laughs> sort of attitude. And fans just never got over it. I, I really truly believe that. Um I don't think that a lot of our listeners fall into that category. Although I know a fair number of our listeners are not Lucas Duda fans, but I, I think that they probably have far more legitimate reasons than being butthurt that Ike Davis didn't work out. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I'll miss him. It's going to be very easy to not only root against the Yankees, uh, but to root for the Red Sox because of Addison Reed and to root for the Rays because of Duda. Um, yeah. You know, kind of played out uh, in, in that sense. So I think that's why I'm encouraging giving Granderson away to either one of those teams, honestly. <laughs> I don't know. I hate the Red Sox pretty pretty mightily at this point in my life. Ah, uh, see, I don't. I, they've, I know they've had their success and everything, and there's you know, like I, I get it, but I don't know. I, they, it's, it's mainly because of the Sox fans I know personally. It's it's, it's the Sox fans right. in my life that are the ones that are uh, that are causing me some uh, some hatred towards that team. Yeah, but I guess the last thing we should talk about though is that. Uh, and we're recording this on Monday night, the 30th of July. By the time you hear this, as long as everything goes to plan, Ahmed Rosario will have made his Mets debut. Oh, yeah, that on, guy. <laughs> yeah, on, on Tuesday night against the Rockies in Colorado. Um, you know, I, I think at this point it's going to be very, very hard for Rosario this season to live up to the hype everybody has for him. Because, you know, all season long, schmucks like you and me have been calling on the Mets to to call him up for, for very, very good reason. But I think at this point in the season, the best thing that he can do 
is just get used to playing in the major leagues. Just getting to a place where next season he can start from a from a place of of not total fear or nerves or discomfort or whatever the case may be. So that's what I hope for Ahmed Rosario this this rest of the season. What do you hope for? Yeah, I, that that sums it up pretty well. I mean, I would say I'd like to see him be league average ish with the bat. You know, just not anything where people go, oh, you know, is he overmatched? That kind of thing. Um, we know what he can do on defense. So, yeah, it, it, same concept. Just holding his own at the major league level. Um, oh, M- Macy's making an appearance. Yeah. I, will, I will take this opportunity to remind our listeners that Addison Russell gets love as if he's this amazing player and has never been a league average hitter for a full season and is currently uh, at an 81-weighted runs created plus, which is well below league average. If Ahmed Rosario put up the same numbers as Addison Russell, you know, obviously the the rate, uh, sorry, not the rate, the counting stats wouldn't be the same. But Addison Russell in 95 games this year, 10 home runs, 36 RBIs. He's at 237, 313. 81 WRC plus, right? If mm-hmm. Ahmed Rosario did that, obviously he's not going to get 340 plate appearances. But if he did the, the exact same thing, you know, let's bring the, the home runs and RBIs and all that down a little. Same batting line uh, from Tuesday through the end of this season, there would be hysteria over why is he bad. Yep. There's this golden stand, standard, double standard really with the Cubs. If Rosario did exactly what Addison Russell has done, people would be questioning what what his career was going to be. And, you know, I just hope he, he hits well enough that nobody even starts to talk about that. That's fair. And uh, I know I said my last question was my last question, but I mean it this time. Um, <laughs> do you think we're going to see Dom Smith before September 1st? Yeah. I mean, only because it was sort of presented that way. Wait, can I hit on the Cubs a little more before we go? Sure, go ahead, yeah. Javier Baez sucks at hitting, too, while we're at it. I mean, not sucks, but it's like he's not great. Again, another guy, hasn't been a league average hitter even once in his career, gets talked about like he's this great hitter. I want Rosario to be better than those two. That's that's what I want out of this season. And yes, I think we see Smith. This is my enthusiasm coming back. I'm coming back to life. I was going to say, I, I like Screw the Cubs. exchange. This is uh... a... <laughs> This is something new. This is uh, you're usually the optimist. You're not. Uh, you're not usually hating on the World Series champions. No, no, no I know. But uh, but yeah, no, I do think we see Smith. I mean, only because it was presented in a way that they sort of roundabout said he'd be up before September first. You know, it sounds like they might want to pull off a waiver trade uh, first to clear a spot in the the roster. Not not even the roster so much as just playing time. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So yeah, I I think we see both. My expectations for Smith are considerably lower. Um credit that to listening to Jeff for several years, but Yeah, agreed. <laughs> uh I, my expectations for Rosario are sky high for his career and tempered for his first two months. Yeah. Uh Smith, I don't know what we're gonna get and I don't know I feel like the Ike Davis lover is in love with Dom Smith and if he doesn't yep. pan out, I don't know what they're gonna do. There is no other solution in the organization other than a hodgepodge of, you know, 
whoever has an infielder's glove. Right. Um, so, yeah. Ahmed Rosario is going to be great. He doesn't have to be amazing right off the bat. That That's that's it. And if Dom Smith is anything, I can, I would personally consider that gravy. Yeah, I was talking with Steve Schreiber about this last week, how like my body is not ready for Dom Smith. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I, I was one of those guys who did not like the draft pick. Mainly because of the power, you know, and I hate to be a, somebody who paints who paints the players with a, if you play first base, you need to hit X amount of home runs brush, because I don't really believe that. But he just doesn't seem like the type of player that I would have drafted in that in that position. And, uh, you know, what the fuck do I know? I'm aware of that. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm just, I feel like losing Duda and having Smith debut in the same time period just seems like it's it's too cruel. I don't know. Yeah, I have one good friend who's a a diehard Mets fan who's like, oh, he'll just he can just be John Olerud, and I'm like, yeah, but that's, <laughs> that's not easy. John <laughs> Olerud was so great, like it's it's really not easy to do that. John Olerud uh, arguably should be in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I can make a case when we get Jay Jaffe on to talk about his book. I, maybe I'll just make him defend the case, his case against John Olerud. Yeah, I, I will join you in that fight. <laughs> but you know, Olerud walked at a at a rate double of what Smith has walked, and Olerud only played in a ma- minor league game on a rehab assignment when he was like thirty seven years old. He went straight <laughs> to the majors and walked at twice the rate that Smith has this year in Las Vegas. You know, you, you it's not that easy to just be Keith Hernandez or John Olerud. And I love Keith, but Olerud was a better hitter. Yeah, and. Uh... Also, I don't think whatever Dom Smith does, he can't have as good of a Ricky Henderson story as John Oliver has. <laughs> You're aware of that story, right? Uh, yes. I, I'm, not, I'm not remembering enough. I couldn't retell it right now, but I know I've heard him talk about it's, it. I feel like I watched one, it very recently, too. It's the one where when, when they were on the Mets, um, Henderson walked up to Oliver and said, Hey man, I used to play with somebody who wore a helmet in the field of first base. And yes. then it's like Ricky, that was me. We played in Toronto together. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that came up. There was like some old or maybe I'm just conflating memories. Some old video of Olerud on like a local news sports thing. Maybe did maybe it didn't come up there, but when the Mets really fall out of this thing, we'll just dedicate each episode to like one player from the nineteen ninety eight team. Okay, right? Can, can we extend it like ninety seven to ninety nine or ninety six to two thousand somewhere in there? Yeah, 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 absolutely. All right, dibs on Carlos Baerga. <laughs> Maybe we can get Fonzie on the show. Hey, Fonzie Scherzer night Wednesday night in Brooklyn. I'll be there. Oh, nice. Beats watching the mats. Absolutely. Hi, this is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and I'm recording this segment the morning after Ahmed Rosario's big league debut in the Mets' loss to the Colorado Rockies, which was Tuesday night in the series opener. Mets took a 2-0 lead, ended up leading 4-3 in the 8th, but allowed a run in the 8th and a run in the ninth, and they lost on Nolan Arenado's walk-off base hits in the ninth inning. It was pretty 
disheartening, although it was cool to see the Mets battle back. It was an exciting game, but the most exciting part was Ahmed Rosario playing Major League Baseball for the first time. Uh, it was a pretty inauspicious debut. He went one for four with a uh, got the, got a single, and he also struck out once. The single was a pretty hard hit ground ball to Trevor Story, and and uh, Rosario uses speed to pick up the base hit. Story's throw is offline, and there is Rosario's first major league base hit. But he also made a defensive miscue in a key spot in the ninth inning. There he had. The Rockies had a runner on first base with nobody out. The runner runs on a ground ball, so Rosario finds himself going towards the bag for the stolen base attempt and then has to reach back across his body for to backhand this sharp ground ball, and it bounces off his glove. They end up calling it a base hit, but it was certainly a play Rosario could have made and gotten a key out at first. Instead, there were runners on first and second or first and third after that, but... The point is, there was a big play. Rosario could have come up big on defense, and he didn't. That's not to say anything about his defense in the future, although certainly people are going to talk about it because it was a really big spot. Um, but uh, the even bigger news came out about Rosario. After the game, Terry Collins said the team is going to rest him in an effort to get him acclimated to big league life. This is pretty disappointing since... There's two months left in the season, and Rosario is a young kid. He's playing shortstop. He shouldn't need to be rested. The Mets have traded away one of their, certainly their best relief pitcher in Addison Reed, and they've dealt away Lucas Duda. So we we know they're playing for next year, so what's the point in resting Rosario? It just seems to, in an effort to get these, their veterans in the lineup, like, Jose Reyes as Drupal Cabrera. Neil Walker is also going to be in the rotation uh, with Wilmer Flores. So that's that's disappointing because with especially with Reyes, he, he might he might be on the team next year just because other teams might not want to deal with him and he might be in a utility role. But you shouldn't really want him on the team next year. But He's the guy that Ahmad, Ahmed Rosario looks up to, and if I were the Mets, I would have already gotten rid of Reyes and found a, a better role model, <laughs> role model for Rosario. But for now, that's the arrangement that Reyes is going to show Rosario the ropes, and hopefully that's about it, because I don't think the Mets should be dealing with Reyes too much in the future, but it's just disappointing that not only is Rosario going to be rested, but that he's going to be learning the game from Jose Reyes, who who uh, isn't probably the best role model to learn from, but he certainly knows how to handle shortstop at big league level, so there is that, and, and that's about it for Rosario's big league debut. It was not the most exciting thing. It was the most exciting thing in the world going in, just because we've waited so long for this prospect, but uh, pretty uneventful. And if the Mets play him enough, though, Rosario will have his moments. He'll probably hit a home run. He'll probably steal some bases. He'll probably make some really fun defensive plays. So the best is yet to come from the young shortstop and. Hopefully he'll help the Mets win some games down the stretch. They still have a bunch of talent on this team uh, to fill out out a decent lineup to compete against teams like the Rockies that are battling for playoff positions. So 
We're going to look forward to the next two months of Ahmed Rosario, and it should be a lot of fun for Mets fans who haven't been having a lot of fun watching this team so far this year. And uh, and ex- expect Dominic Smith to come up sometime in the near future too. You know, you know the Mets want to see what they have in him since he's going to be a candidate for the first base job next year. So it's more fun to be had this year as the Mets continue to battle the Colorado Rockies here in the first week of August. This has been Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio. Last week, we discussed the best trades in franchise history. Now we examine the five trades the Mets and their fans long regret. At number five, it's the trade of Rusty Staub and a prospect to Detroit for Mickey Lolich and another minor leaguer. Lolich was the World Series MVP in 1968 and contended for the AL Cy Young in 72 and 73. Too bad he was traded for in 1975 because over the course of the two seasons leading up, Mickey saw unflattering increases in his loss total, in his ERA, and in his weight. The Mets were undeterred by a potential decline and likewise were buying the stock of Mike Vale as a starting right fielder, especially when he concluded his initial big league stint with a 302 average and a 23-game September hitting streak. That was good enough to send away Staub coming off a 105 RBI season in exchange for Lolich. The deal was regretted almost instantaneously after it was consummated. Vale injured his knee during the winter while playing basketball, sat out most of the 1976 campaign, and was never the same. Lolich went 8-13 in his only season as a Met, while Staub enjoyed his three most productive years as a professional before returning to New York in 1981. On to number four, and the start of the Mets' meandering and futile search for a third baseman. The offseason is naturally the period when most transactions occur. Forgoing any thoughts of the Christmas spirit, the Mets became prone to absurd generosity during the month of December in the years following their 1969 title. Their first mistake came shortly after winning in 69 and set the Mets in motion for a series of bad deals. Seeking a solid hitter at the hot corner, on the third day of, yes, December, They sent Amos Otis, along with Bob Johnson, to Kansas City for Joe Foy. While Otis became a solid center fielder and a five-time All-Star and a three-time Gold Glove Award winner with the Royals, Foy's only season in New York was a complete disaster. He batted just .236 with six home runs and 37 RBIs to go along with just 12 doubles. Another disaster occurred at number three, when the Mets shipped two key parts of the 1986 championship team in exchange for what turned out to be a half-year rental. On a Sunday afternoon in Philadelphia in mid-June, completing a weekend series, the Mets and Phillies engaged in swap meet bartering. As it turned out, the New Yorkers got their pockets picked. Lenny Dykstra and Roger McDowell were the principals the Phillies received. The Mets got Juan Samuel, a decent hitter and a below-average fielder at second base. Recognizing his liability, Samuel was moved to center field, a position at which he had very little experience. The burden and the liability each got greater when Mookie Wilson was traded away on August 1st. Immediate anger arose amongst the fan base that had come to embrace Dykstra's aggressiveness and McDowell's eccentricity only to intensify when it became apparent Samwell was just as lost at the plate as he was in the field. 
he batted only two twenty-eight and departed for Los Angeles in the offseason. McDowell continued to be an effective reliever, while Dykstra blossomed into a near-MVP for Philadelphia in 1993. The loss of popular players like Dykstra and McDowell pale in comparison to the loss of Tom Seaver, and that is part of our number two worst trade in Mets history. June 15, 1977 is ranked high among the darkest days in Mets history, if not the darkest. On that night, the franchise was off to Cincinnati. Seaver's ten full seasons with New York resulted in three Cy Young Awards, nearly 200 victories, and the 1969 World Series championship. He was still among the best pitchers in baseball heading into the 1977 campaign, but tight-fisted team chairman M. Donald Grant was unwilling to relent to his demands to improve the team and improve his contract situation. It resulted in a move that had a carryover effect in the coming seasons and helped cement Grant as public enemy number one in Queens. The cumulative return value of the four players the Mets received, Steve Henderson, Pat Zachary, Dan Norman, and Doug Flynn, couldn't come close to measuring up to Seaver's impact. In fact, the wins above replacement, or war, for the four players over their Mets careers was 10.1 combined. That's just slightly above Seaver's best war season as a Met, 1973, in which it was 9.5. It's no surprise, then, that the Mets sunk to the bottom, in attendance and in the standings. The franchise was gone, literally and figuratively. As Seaver departed, all hope went with it. The worst trades are the ones in which they are immediately panned and correctly proven over time. Our number one all-time worst trade wasn't hated right away, but in the many, many years ahead, it accumulated tremendous regret. Who would have predicted that Nolan Ryan, the young fireballing right-hander from Texas, would gain enough control of his fastball to endure for almost three decades and become a standard of pitching durability? If Gil Hodges and the Mets front office did, he would have done more of it in New York and none of it in Anaheim. The Mets saw potential, but were not willing to wait any longer for the potential to turn into the consistent results they were promised. With the starting staff well established with Seaver and Kuzman, and still possessing that need for a third baseman, they made what turned out to be one of the most fateful oversights in the annals of baseball dealings. On December 10, 1971, Ryan and three prospects went to the California Angels for Jim Fregosi, a six-time All-Star, at shortstop. The trade drew quiet criticism initially, only to crescendo once the Mets experienced a double barrel of misfortune in the aftermath. Fergosi broke his right thumb in the early portion of 1972. He played 101 games that year, and 43 the next, before being sold to the Texas Rangers. Over the next three seasons of Ryan's career, he threw three of his eventual record-setting seven no-hitters, while averaging nearly 360 strikeouts. That's all for the Trade Talk. I'm Brian Wright. You can follow me on Twitter, at BrianWright86. Hey everyone, this is Steve Seiper, and I'm back to go for our minor league plays of the week for Week 17. The Las Vegas 51s went 2-5, which gives them a win-loss record of 39-68, and which puts them 16 games behind the Salt Lake Bees, first place in the PCL Pacific Southern Division. 
The Biggins and Rumble Ponies went seven and one, which is pretty good, and that puts them at fifty nine and forty four for the season. But despite the pretty good week and the record way above five hundred, they're still eleven games behind the Trenton Thunder for first place. St. Lucie Mets went four and three, and they are fifteen and twenty one in the second half, which puts them seven and a half games behind the Fort Myers Miracle for first place in the FSL South. The Columbia Fireflies went 3-3, and and that gives them a record in the second half of 15-19, and which is eight games behind the Charleston River Dogs. The Cyclones had a poor week. They went 1-5, and and that puts them at 12-26, and which is 13 games behind the Staten Island Yankees. The Kingsport Mets went 3-5 and and are 15-21 and for the year, and the GCL Mets went 2-5 and and are 9-19 and for the year. So, our pitcher of the week for week 16 is Mickey Janis, Binghamton right-hander. He pitched a complete game shutout this week against the Akron Rubber Ducks in game two of a doubleheader, allowing four hits, walking one, and striking out nine. So, this was definitely Janis's best start of the season, and arguably, you could say that this was one of his best starts as a professional baseball player. It was the first time in his entire career that he struck out nine batters. It was the first time in his professional career that he threw a complete game. It was the first time that he threw a shutout. It was one of a handful of times that he's pitched seven innings or more. And it was one of a handful of times where he gave up five walks or hits combined. So the upside still, you know, it's not really there with Janice. And he's still more organizational filler than an actual guy that has MLB potential. But at least he's interesting. He's, um, you know, more than just generic, boring, nothing special, organizational filler right-hander because of the knuckleball. And, you know, we all love knuckleballs. And now, our hit of the week is Rigoberto Terrazas. He had a great week down in Kingsport. He was 16 for 28 with three doubles, one home run, five RBI, two walks, and one strikeout. So a little background about Terrazas. Uh, he was signed by the Mets in 2012 out of the same IFA period that saw the Mets sign Ricardo Cespedes, who was recently traded, uh, Ali Sanchez, Jeffrey de Aza, Luis Carpio, Luis Silva, and Cecilio Ayabar. He's the nephew of Ivan Terrazas, who was uh, signed by the Braves at the beginning of the millennium, and he went on to have a decent career in the Mexican League. So, Rigoberto was originally signed as a middle infielder, but the Mets have used him pretty much all over the place just to see where he would be uh, the best fit with his skill set. In the DSL, he played every single position except for catcher, and since coming stateside last year, he's logged a few innings at every infield position, with the bulk of it coming at third base. Um... He probably fits the best at third because he's a decent arm. A few years ago, he was clocked as high as 86 uh, miles per hour throwing, so that's uh, pretty decent. But because of his status as you know a non-premium IFA signee and the fact that he's down in Kingsport, it's been hard to get information on Terrasas. Uh, so you know, not a lot of reports were you know authored coming into the year about him. And there really haven't been too many eyes on him uh, since the season has started. But as of the end of the week, he was hitting 384, 
453, 558, and he's basically at or near the top of a whole bunch of offensive categories down in the Appalachian League. So whether or not Tarasas is a legit prospect or not, and unfortunately my gut is saying no, but at least there'll probably be a bit of interest uh, on him right now, which will probably lead to some more information about him. And now, because the Mets farm system has suddenly expanded by a few relievers, I'm going to talk about the Lucas Duda and Addison Reed trades. I want to approach it as more of their impact on the minor league teams rather than just a straight editorial or anything, because opinions are a dime a dozen and who cares what I think. So, first guy up is Drew Smith. The Mets got him from Tampa Bay in exchange for Lucas Duda. He's a 23-year-old right-hander. He was drafted in the third round of the 2015 draft by Detroit, and he was sent to the Rays to complete the Mikey Matuk trade. He started 2017 on the Lakeland Flying Tigers, their high-A team, and then he was sent to Tampa's high-A team, the Charlotte Stone Crabs, when he was traded, and he spent most of his season there. He got in a few token innings, nothing big, with the Durham Bulls, and the team with the best mascot in all of baseball, the Montgomery Biscuits. So he's been assigned to the Rumble Ponies, and he'll probably immediately slot in as Louis Rojas's setup man to Corey Burns, who is the closer. Corey Taylor and Tim Peterson have been splitting that role, but Taylor's been having a very up-and-down season, and Smith really just has better stuff than Peterson. He throws hard, um, his fastball sits in the mid to high 90s, and he throws a bunch of of pitches, a cutter, a changeup, a curveball, but the curve is the only one that really projects to be an average or better pitch. So next up are the guys that the Mets got for Addison Reed uh, from Boston. First is Gerson Batista. He's a 22-year-old right-hander, signed out of the Dominican Republic in 2013, but pretty much a week after he signed with them, he got slammed with a suspension for testing positive for Stanzalol, and he missed the entire season. So his first real season as a professional baseball player was a year later in 2014. And then he came stateside in 2015 and played with the GCL Red Sox. He started this season with the Salem Red Sox, Boston's high A team. And since being traded, he's been assigned to the St. Lucie Mets. So the St. Lucie bullpen isn't really that bad, adjusted for level and all that stuff. And... Batista basically gives Chad Kreuter another arm to play with. Um, Ty Bachelor has been has gotten most of the saves to St. Lucie, and Batista actually profiles very much like him. They both have big fastballs. Bachelor sits mid nineties and touches ninety seven, ninety eight, while Batista sits also in the mid nineties and touch has touched as high as a hundred. Bachelor's best secondary pitch is a kind of slurvy slider in the mid eighties, and Batista's best secondary is a mid eighties slider. Bachelor's problems with his command and has that's led to way too many walks. And Batista has problems with his command and that's led to way too many walks. Uh, Batista definitely has more upside than other guys in the bullpen like Johnny Magliozzi, Craig Missickman, Alex Palsha, Joshua Torres. So I'd expect him to get thrown into the fire pretty quickly and possibly uh, take a prominent role in the St. Lucie bullpen. So after Batista, there's Jamie Callahan. He's a 22-year-old right-hander, drafted by the Red Sox in the second round of the 2012 draft. He started this season on the Portland Sea Dogs, Boston's double-A team. 
And after pitching well there for about a month or so, he got promoted to the Pawtucket Red Sox, which is Boston's AAA affiliate. So Callahan is probably going to immediately be thrust into uh, an important role in Pedro Lopez's um, 51's bullpen. He has a lot of back-end experience, and he profiles as a kind of high leverage reliever at the level that he's at right now. He throws hard, he sits in the mid-90s, and he's a decent slider. And the Mets actually have a decent, you know, they've had decent success in developing relievers that fit that mold. Look at guys like Hansel Robles, Paul Seawald, even Jason Bradford a bit. They've all had varying levels of success at the major leagues, so hopefully Callahan can follow in their footsteps. Uh, he's he's close enough, actually, that he could probably, in theory, throw some MLB innings this year. So we'll see about that. And finally, there's Steven Nogasek. He's a 22-year-old right-hander drafted by the Red Sox in the sixth round of the 2016 draft out of the University of Oregon. That's the same school that David Peterson went to, and the two of them are actually teammates in 2015 and 2016, with Peterson being the starter there for the Ducks and Nogasek being the closer. He pitched at the Greenville Drive and the Salem Red Sox this year, and he's been pretty successful. He's another guy that's a kind of fastball slider pitcher. Uh, His fastball sits in the low to mid-90s. It gets a lot of sync, and his slider, which sits in the mid-80s, has pretty good horizontal break. And when he throws a little harder than the mid-80s, it kind of acts almost like a cutter. So like Gerson Batista, he's probably going to be one of the higher upside guys in the St. Lucie pen and probably will immediately be given a shot for high leverage innings. As for the upsides of all these guys, that's a lot harder to say. Uh, Callahan at Smith could see some MLB innings, even this year, especially Callahan. Nogasek, he's a little bit further behind, and Batista, even though he has the most upside of everyone, his profile has the most risk, so who knows if he'll ever, you know, see anything close to MLB innings. Uh, I want to paraphrase Jared Seidler from BP, quote, I have no problem trading for good prospects that project as late-game relief pitchers. The Mets have yet to get one, end quote. To me, that's the biggest disappointment with all this. It would have been nice to get, you know, a, a top prospect, but with this market, they just weren't. You know, Lucas Duda, he's been among the top third or so first baseman in, in baseball of the last couple of years. Reed, he's the same thing. He's been one of the top relief pitchers in baseball over the last couple of years. And it just, it's the way that the market broke. You know, the Mets were obviously interested in, and they were targeting relievers, and that's a justifiable position to take given that some of the affiliates' bullpens are just really bare, you know, and so poor that over the last couple of years they've been picking up indie ball guys just to round out the rosters and fill in some innings. But all of that said, the Mets just didn't get a high upside, you know, setup or closer potential guy. If the old rules for the qualifying offers are still in place, honestly, I'd say that the draft picks for Duda and Reed rejecting the qualifying offers would have been more valuable than these guys. But unfortunately, the new CBA is kind of convoluted uh, when it comes to the qualifying offers, and the Mets probably wouldn't have qualified to get compensation because compensation would have depended on who was signing the players and for how much and for you know how much how high that team's total payroll is. It's kind of a mess. So 
I'm not going to say that Sandy Alderson dropped the ball or anything, since obviously I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. But, man, if only this year was 2016. Uh, a year ago, the Mets could have gotten one or two top ten prospects from a team for Reed. A year ago, the Mets could have gotten a top ten prospect or so for Duda. This season, you know, not so much. And that kind of sucks. So those are our minor league players of the week for week 17 and then a little extra. This is Steve Seiper, and I'll talk with everyone next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. We are officially past the trade deadline, the Mets are officially out of it, and I am officially going to stop even talking about games, because they just don't matter anymore. And the rest of the season is just kind of coasting. It's going to be about keeping players healthy or getting players healthy. Seeing what Rosario can do came up Tuesday night in Denver. The defense looked good except for that little mishap at the end of the game. But the Mets were going to lose that game anyway, so it's fine. Dom Smith will probably be up within a week, two weeks. I don't know. He'll be up soon. There's no reason to keep him down anymore. They've got some place, pieces still sell off at the wait on the in August. You've got Granderson and Bruce and Cabrera, who hopefully should all be gone. We'll see. I have no idea anymore. They got rid of Reed. They got rid of Duda. The AJ Ramos pickup probably is a good idea. I don't know. I'll let you know like midway through next year. It's way too early to tell. But this season's over. This is just going to be about enjoying some baseball. And as I say that, I'm going to laugh myself off the air. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com for all your Mets news, whether it's uh, trade updates. You know, we are still in the waiver trade period now, so the Mets will probably make, I'd say, at least one or two more trades, or that's what I'd expect over the next few weeks. And there's no better place to find out about that stuff than Amazing Avenue, as well as our game recaps, our Monday morning mind-bogglers, this podcast, everything else you can want Mets-related, you can find at AmazingAvenue.com. You can also... Go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and find Amazing Avenue at Amazing Avenue. This podcast, the one you're listening to right now, can be direct, downloaded directly from blogtalkradio.com or you can find it on I, on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, or on your podcatcher of choice. And finally, you can follow all the contributors to this week's episode on Twitter. Our guest, Aaron Boone, can be found at Aaron Boone underscore ESPN. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. Chris is at Chris McShane. Kate is at Kate E. Feldman. Steve is at Steve Saipa. Brian is at Brian Wright 86. And Aaron York is at Aaron P. York. So it's been a rough couple weeks. The Mets are more than likely absolutely out of it, no matter what the standings will tell you. So let's try and be hopeful. Let's look for some good Ahmed Rosario action. Let's look for maybe a Dom Smith promotion and see if there's actually some uh, some future there. And we'll just try and find more ways to keep each other optimistic and happy on Amazing Avenue Audio. And so, until next time, let's go Mets!